Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your grace is enough even for us. We trust that now you would give even more to us, more grace through your word. We open our hearts and minds and our whole lives to you. We believe that the order you give us for our lives is your love for us. And so we submit to it now in faith, in the name of Christ. Amen. In his book called Life, the Movie, cultural critic um, Nell Gabler uh, claims that People Magazine has become kind of the archetypal magazine for our age. Um, was People Magazine was inspired by Time Magazine that had a section in it in the early 70s that chronicled celebrity milestones. And People Magazine expanded the concept to include anything a celebrity did uh, on the canny principle that ordinary people were fascinated by extraordinary ones. Within 10 months of its launch, on March 4th, 1974, the magazine had a circulation of 1.25 million people. People Magazine now rakes in $1.5 billion annually. Um, They always made a point to include non-celebrities in its pages, but its success was unmistakably a testament to the enchantment of celebrity. People editor editor Richard Stolle even devised a set of rules for a successful cover to People magazine. This is what he said. Young is better than old, as evidence behind me. Pretty is better than ugly. Rich is better than poor. TV is better than music. Music is better than movies. Movies are better than sports. Anything is better than politics. And nothing is better than a celebrity who has just died. It was a bracing description of not only what sold magazines, but of what values the media now was selling to us. So, if your life was a magazine, what would be on the cover? What would be the rules that would govern what's there? What would, what would you say should go on the cover that would best represent the rule that matters most to you? Today in Deuteronomy 6, Moses is going to prescribe for us what it is that must matter most in our lives, what must occupy the cover of our lives, so to speak. This is it. Pay close attention to this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These verses, and you need to know this because we're so close to the big school down the road, these verses are sometimes called the Shema, 
When somebody talks about the Shema, they're talking about these verses. It's, it's the word that means hear. Um, and it is a de- declaration that God, our God, is one. Um, it, is, it is a call to worship this one God and Him alone. Theologians debate its meaning. Specifically, they, they say that it could be saying that Yahweh is incomparable. Or that he is singular. Or that he is undivided. To which I would simply say, yes, yes, yes. He is all those things. He is incomparable. He is singular. He is undivided. He is worthy of our worship and our love. This one amazing God, Moses says, we are to love with all our heart, soul, and strength. This, Moses says, should be the rule that is on the cover of your life. The great apostle Paul, when he wanted to underscore the virtue that reigns supreme above all others, would put the exact same image on the cover. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The Apostle John, who bore the title, The Disciple Jesus Loved, when trying to capture the very essence of God for his cover picture, put it this way. He says, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love, John says. It seems that even the Beatles got this one right. All we need is love. The most important thing in the world is being loved by God and loving Him wholeheartedly in return. Nothing matters more. Get this right. Put this on your cover. Make it your top priority. Loving God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might matters more than anything else, period. Jesus when he was being pressed with the question of what's the most important commandment, would quote this one. He says in, um, if you can advance that, thank you. In, let me go one more. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus answers, the most important commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus tells us, put this picture on your life's cover. How you love God, the one true God, is what matters more than anything else. So when Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, it is a call to love God with everything we are. Christopher Wright says that to love God with all your heart is not so much what we think of in terms of like a Valentine's kind of love, but it has to do with loving God with your intellect, your will, and your intention. He says that to love with all your soul is to love with your emotions and desires, to love with all that is within me is the way the psalmist would put it. And to love with all your might is kind of an underscoring of that. Some ancient translators used to render it, love him with all your stuff. 
with all your resources. But another way to render it is that you would love him with total commitment, total excess, totally over the top. Love God that way. See, there is to be only one picture on the cover. There really is only one rule, and that is loving God wholeheartedly matters most. And since that's the thing that matters most, then that's the thing that we must pass on to our children. In the next verse, Moses writes, you shall teach them these commandments, specifically this great commandment of love, diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. See, this is the legacy that we are to pass on to our children. This is it. Guys, teach your kid how to throw a ball. Teach them when deer season starts. Teach them what color blue is acceptable in your house, what color blue is not acceptable in your house. But above all these things, and so much more importantly, you must be most diligent, most intentional, most persistent. What you must model to them, what they must see on the cover of your life, is the supreme importance above all things, above all allegiances, the supreme importance of loving God. You must talk to them about this. It must be caught. It must also be taught. You must talk with them when you sit in your house, Moses says, and when you walk by the way. You must do it when you're at home and when you are out and about. You must do it everywhere, he has said. Everywhere you go. This must shape work and school and ball games and recitals. It's all about how we love and honor and obey God. He says you must talk about it when you lie down and when you rise, when you tuck them in at night, when you feed them breakfast in the morning. This must be the constant conversation point with your children. Not just one hour on Sunday morning when you drop them off in a class. We don't love God just one hour. If you only loved your wife one hour a week, say late on a Saturday night, we would say you don't love her. You're just using her. We don't use God. We love God with all of our heart and all of our soul, and all of our mind. Loving God must be the rationale behind your discipline and your rewards and your celebrations and your priorities. Be diligent to teach your children this, to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Now, I don't think I know of a more convicting passage of Scripture. Um, and some of you hear it and you think, I have failed, there is no hope. But there's hope. That's why you're here today to receive encouragement from God to pick up that which you have dropped and take it forward from this day on. It doesn't matter if your children are 5 or 15 or 25. They need to hear this from you and see this from you. 
that the greatest thing in life is to love God with all your heart. It is never too late to begin loving God and teaching that to your children. Moses goes on and says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Jews, um, Orthodox and conservative Jews, still apply this literally. Um, You'll see things like this, where they have what are known as phylacteries, and they wear them uh, between their eyes, and they contain uh, scriptures, little parchments inside. And those little parchments primarily contain what we're reading this morning, the Shema. Um, One of those is fastened to the forehead, and one of those is fastened to the left arm. They are intended to serve as a reminder of the constant presence of God and the need to keep him uppermost in one's thoughts and deeds, safeguarding the wearer thereby against committing sin. It's a way of keeping these core truths, commandments, literally before their eyes. Um, these were the post-it notes and the screensavers of their day. Okay. How do you keep the great truths of God before your eyes? It goes on and says you should bind them on your doorpost. And you should put them on your gate outside your house. Um, that was called a mezuzah. And it might look like this. A small box, again with a parchment containing the Shema inside. Um, they were made of different materials. Leonard Sweet in his book Soul Salsa helps us think about how we can, what he says, mezuzah our universe. He says, on the right side of every Jewish doorpost is nailed a small piece of parchment rolled and inserted into a wood, metal, stone, or ceramic case called a mezuzah. On the front of the parchment are lettered the 22 lines of the Shema, the passage we're talking about this morning from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. The Hebrew word Shaddai, which means almighty, is inscribed on the back in such a way that it can be seen from the outside. The mezuzah was a ritual code that said to everyone entering and leaving that home, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, for us today, a mezuzah is a ritual that helps us grow our own souls by modulating the mundane into the eternal. A mezuzah connects us to our creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. To mezuzah our universe, he says, is to create sacred space and sacred rituals wherever we go to keep these great truths before us. And he suggests things like when you move into a new house, have a house blessing. When you get a car, bless it for God's use. When you polish the silver candelabra you inherited from your grandmother or clean the treasure your wife gave you on your honeymoon or vacuum your mother's oriental rug, offer a prayer of gratitude to God for the influence in your life. Every time you open a book, he says, Invoke the ancient rabbinic admonition that an hour of study is to be in the eyes of God as an hour of prayer. He says, every time I open my Bible, he says, I offer two prayers. One is thanks for William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English so he could read it. And the second one is a prayer that his life would be a third testament to be useful to God. Prayer can mezuzah mealtimes and every 
part of the day. Moses says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The idea is that the commands of God, especially this command to love God wholeheartedly, is to shape all we do. Personally, with our hands and our eyes, in our family, on the doorposts of our house, in our community, on the gates as we enter the community in which we live. All of life is to be offered up in obedient love for the God who is one. A mezuzah is a ritual that helps us grow our own souls. A mezuzah connects us to our creator, redeemer, and sanctifier. How can you mezuzah your world? How can you remember the great truth to love God wherever you go? Um, What are the rituals that will help you? I have several. One is um, every night when I uh, go to bed, I take off uh, the rings that I wear. I take off my wedding band and I take off the other band, which is a cross that my wife gave to me for an anniversary gift years ago. And then every morning I put those back on. And when I put those back on, I'm reminded of the two great covenants that shape, shape my life. My covenant, my marriage covenant with my wife and my covenant relationship with Christ. And I pray and ask God's favor to give me grace to keep those covenants that day. Life can be full of those little opportunities to pray and remember, um, to call to mind the great truths of God. How will you mezuzah your world? How will you remember? Because Moses warns us of three pitfalls that will rob us of loving God well. And the first of those is in verses 10 through 13. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, remember they're just about to enter the promised land, that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Warning number one, do not forget God, especially when times are good, when times, when we prosper. You know, they had all these things. They had cities, they had wells, they had vineyards, none of which they worked for. They walked into the land and took the land over, and they were all there for them, gifts from God. And those gifts oddly enough, in our twisted hearts can seduce us away from the giver. We can take it all for granted. We can forget that it was a gift from a loving God, undeserved by us. Forgetting is bad for love. If you've ever forgotten an anniversary, you know what I mean. Forgetting is bad for love. We live in prosperous times. Even though the economy is difficult right now, relatively, still, one billion people in the world do not have access to clean water, while the average American uses 400 to 600 liters of water a day. 
Every seven seconds somewhere in the world, a child under age five dies of hunger, while Americans throw away 14% of the food we purchase. Nearly one billion people in the world live on less than one American dollar a day. Another two and a half billion people in the world live on less than two American dollars a day. More than half of the world lives on less than two dollars a day, while the American, average American teenager spends nearly $150 a week. 1.6 billion people in the world have no electricity. Nearly 1 billion people in the world cannot read or even sign their name. By far, most of the people in the world do not own a car. One-third of American families own three cars. When I left my house today, there were six cars in my house. I'm not even sure who they belong to. <laughs> one in seven children, one in seven children worldwide, 158 million, have to go to work every day just to survive. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half of the world does on all goods. Be careful. Be careful, Moses says, that you do not forget the Lord. Maybe we need to mezuzah every meal and every purchase with prayers of thanks to God and prayers of consecration of those things to God. See, if you do not pray pray prayers of thanksgiving and consecration, acknowledging God, we will forget him. We'll forget him at work. We'll forget him at school. We will forget him at home. We will forget our God. And while we have much more to say about this in chapter 8 in two weeks, he tells us in verse 13, a check against forgetfulness. He says, it is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve. And by his name, you shall swear. Fearing God precludes forgetfulness. You cannot forget that which you fear. In what we called worship fear last week, we acknowledge our great need and dependence on God in all things. In fearing him, we consecrate all things to him for his good purpose. What we have is in his service. That's why we loan out our cars. That's why we give away our money. That's why we share our meals. That's why we open up our homes to those in need. We fear God. We swear in his name alone. That is, our allegiance is wholly his. Jesus, it's interesting, he quoted this exact verse when he was tempted by the devil with prosperity. Again, in Matthew 4, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said, all these I'll give to you, Jesus, If you'll fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written in Deuteronomy 6, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It warded Satan off when he was tempting Jesus to prosper himself and forget his Father in heaven. Have you forgotten God where you work? When you go to school. See, a day without prayer is a boast against God. That's the first warning. The second warning is in verses 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. We've talked about this In the Ten Commandments, we'll talk about it again as we work through the legal section of Deuteronomy. Um, No other gods. 
Here he says, especially the gods of the people around you. There are many gods around us that people in Wake Forest worship. The gods of success or of wealth or, as we've seen, of celebrity or of possessions. Ray Ortland identifies perhaps the central one when he talks about the god of self. He says, you and I are not integrated, unified, whole persons. Our hearts are multi-divided. It's like we have a boardroom in every heart. Imagine a big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, and a whiteboard. A committee sits around the table in your heart. There's the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, and others. And the committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated and upset. Rarely can they come to a unanimous, wholehearted decision. We tell ourselves we're this way because we're so busy with so many responsibilities, but the truth is we're just divided, unfocused, hesitant, and unfree. He says that kind of person can accept Jesus in two ways. One way is to invite him onto the committee. Give him a vote too. But then he becomes just one more voice, one more complication. He says the other way to accept Jesus is to say to him, my life isn't working. Please come in and fire my committee, every last one of them. I hand myself over to you. I am your responsibility now. Please run my whole life for me. He says accepting Jesus is not just adding Jesus. It's also subtracting the idols. Which would you describe, which would describe you best and your relationship with Jesus? Is he just another voice on the committee or is he Lord? That's Moses' second warning. No other gods, and the language is clear there. God has zero tolerance for an adulterous heart that welcomes lesser gods. Third warning is in verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Um, this is from Exodus 17, where Israel was grumbling because they had no water in the desert. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And down in verse 7, it says that Moses called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The testing had to do with questioning whether or not God was with them as he had promised and as he had demonstrated repeatedly. They asked God to prove himself, to prove his love for them anew. And when times are hard, we are tempted to forget the promises and make our trust contingent on fresh proof. Now again, Jesus cited this exact text when tempted by Satan to doubt God's care for him. Matthew 4, the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him in verse 7 there, 
Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Both Jesus and Moses urge us in hard times not to test God, but to trust him and to obey. Back in verse 17 of our text, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. This is how we love God. We obey his commandments, even in the hardest of times, times when we're in a desert and there is no water, because we hope in his goodness. Because it says in verse 18, you'll do what's right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When we love God and we obey him, it will go well with us and he will act on our behalf. Are you trusting God with what you are facing or are you testing him? Don't forget all that he has done for you. Cling to Hebrews 13. It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Can you say that with what you're facing? Can you say, I will trust him. I will not fall prey to testing him. What can man do to me? Now, in our closing verses, Moses returns to what he was talking about at the beginning, how to teach our children. In this case, it's what to teach our children. In verse 20, he says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. So Moses knows that the questions are coming from the children. They will sound like this. Why do we have to go to Sunday school? Why do we have to go to church? We're, we're an hour short on sleep today. Can't we just sleep in? Okay. Moses is telling us how to answer those questions. He gives us Two things that must be shared with our children. They want to know why we do what we do. First, teach your children about the great, loving, powerful rescue of God. He says it this way in verse 21. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Christopher Wright says that these verses are virtually the Old Testament gospel in a nutshell. God has rescued us from slavery. His people then, by the exodus, us by the cross. So, 
when your son says, why do we do this, Dad? Why do we follow God? Why do we do what we do, son? Why do we live our lives lovingly obeying God? Because in love, he has rescued us from our sins. He has set us free from slavery. That's the first thing Moses says we must pass on. The second thing is to teach your children that his commands are always for their good. In verse 24 and 25, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. These commands, just like his rescue, are his love for us. They are for our good always. Since Christmas, the the backyard behind our house is uh, an airsoft war zone. If you don't know what those are, they're little plastic BB guns that uh, kids shoot at either and occasionally parents shoot at the children with. And um, we have woods in our back, so much warfare is out there, forts are being built, but the, the, the premier place to hold up in airsoft is up on the deck that we're having built. Because um, it's elevated about 12 feet, you can be a sniper up there and just, just nail those little rascals up there. <laughs> but there is a, just hypothetically speaking, <laughs> up, up on that deck, there's a section that has no railing. So I have forbidden airsoft players to be on that section of the deck. It's the best place to be. And I have forbidden it to be. Because carried away in warfare, you take one wrong step, you fall about 12 feet off of that deck. And you're going to the hospital. And I will not allow that to happen. So it is for their good, this command that has been decreed. And every one of God's commands for us is so much better thought out, so much more fully envisioned for our good. Read it carefully. It says, to fear, to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, it's for our good always. So when your children say, why do we obey God? And we say, oh, his commands are for our good always. Our obedience to these commands is the right response to such amazing love, verse 25 says. Our children's questions are prompted by their parents' lives. Why do we do this? It's our obedience that sets up these teaching opportunities. They see the cover of our lives is marked by obedience to God, by loving Him in all we do. And we love Him simply because He first loved us. Why do we follow God's ways, son? Why does our family love God? Because he first loved us. He has rescued us. And all of his commands are good for us. Well, there's much to chew on in this passage. Um, But I want you to think with me honestly, what's on your cover? When your children look at your life, do they see a man or a woman who above all things is committed to loving God with all their heart, soul, and strength? Is that what you are diligently passing on? Let's pray together.
Father, if this, if this really matters most, then we have some restructuring to do. Some of our lives don't make any sense if this is what matters. And we have, we've been misled. We have forgotten. We have worshipped other gods. We have tested you when your love has been decisively proven to us. Um, so I pray right now, God, as we bow before you, that you might prompt us to know what, what does it mean for us to love you? What does it mean for this to matter most? What does it mean for us to pass this on? God, bless the conversations to follow over lunch and in our small groups and alone with you as we review your word and as you speak to us by your spirit. We will do what you say because we know it is always good for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our time is gone.